You may be seated. We have a lot to cover today in Philemon, so let me go before the Lord and pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, grant us ears to hear and minds to understand your word. By the power of your Spirit, may we be conformed to the image of the Son, your only Son, and obey the commands of Christ as we ought to as your disciples. You desire this of us. We desire these things for ourselves. We ask these things in his holy name, in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Seventeen years ago, yesterday, I woke up in my bedroom at my parents' house alone. Seventeen years ago today, I woke up sharing a bed with Danielle Harness for the first time. It was my privilege as a new husband to finally not have to say goodnight and then make the long drive away from Danielle to a different bed. Finally, we were married. Finally, we did not have to say goodnight and part ways. Finally, I wasn't alone. But it would have been very strange if after standing in front of 400 people, making a covenant with my wife, celebrating the wedding with a reception, dinner, and dance, and then turn to Danielle and say, at the end of our wedding day, well, I guess I should go home and then drive back to my parents' house and sleep in my own bed like nothing had ever happened. That would be very strange indeed. What would be equally as strange is for a Christian to have been forgiven of his or her many sins by Christ, has been radically changed by the gospel, and then to not be a forgiving person. That would be very strange indeed. It would be like a catcher in baseball putting on all his catching gear and then running out to center field. One would think that scenario strange. It would be like a barista without coffee beans. That would be an absolute travesty if you ask me. An unforgiving Christian is like a brand new husband departing from his, we- from his wife at the wedding reception to return to his lonesome bed as if nothing had ever happened. In my last sermon in Philemon, we talked about the anatomy of a forgiving person. This is we talked about the attributes of a forgiving person. We answered the question, what does a forgiving person look like? We discovered first and foremost that a forgiving person is someone who has been radically changed by sovereign grace in verses 1 through 3 of Philemon. A forgiving person is a forgiven person. Second, the idea that a forgiving person is full of faith and love was seen from verses 4 through 7. A forgiving person has a great faith towards God and love for the saints. Lastly, we examined in verses 8 through 9 that a forgiving person is humble towards those who give spiritual instruction. A forgiving person is open to receiving spiritual instruction. Today we answer the question, what does a forgiving person do? And to answer that question, we turn to the rest of Philemon, namely verses 10 through 25. You'll find the letter to Philemon on page 100, or 1,195 in the Black Pew Bibles. Philemon, it is only one chapter. You will we'll be examining verses 10 through 25. But we will start with the appeal for forgiveness in verses 10 
through 16, the appeal for forgiveness. Paul continues to reason with Philemon. He has already recounted Philemon's character, his anatomy of forgiveness, which is shaped by the gospel. Now we will see Paul's call for radical action, but first we'll look at Paul's actual appeal on behalf of Onesimus, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Praise God for his word. Look at the language that Paul is using for Onesimus in this passage. My son whom I fathered. My own heart whom I wanted to keep with me. A beloved brother, especially to me. Paul absolutely loved Onesimus and he wants Philemon to know just how much. What do we know about Onesimus from this passage? First, his name in the Greek language means useful. Paul is using a play on words when he says that Onesimus was once useless to Philemon, but now is useful both to Paul and to Philemon. Onesimus is finally living up to his namesake. But the most important thing that we know about Onesimus is that he was saved under Paul's ministry. But how did this happen? Well, another thing that we know about Onesimus is that he was a runaway slave. Onesimus ran away from Philemon, perhaps stealing something or just stealing himself away. He found himself in, a large, in the large city of Rome, probably because it was easier to be anonymous in that city as a runaway slave. But by God's providence, he found himself in the company of Paul. Now, it is at this point that I want to address the issue of slavery. And I need to thank an older and wiser mentor who has helped me with this explanation. The word translated slave here is a specific part of the Greco-Roman workforce called a household slave. In New Testament times, there was a lot of variety as to how these household slaves were treated. Some slaves served as doctors, teachers, managers, and even musicians. And in some cases, it was not uncommon for a slave to be more educated than his master. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters and did not have freedom. Their service was certainly involuntary, and they certainly could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their masters. Slaves were on the low end of the totem pole in the Greco-Roman society. Now, it is sometimes confusing to us why the New Testament would address slaves and masters if this situation was unjust. Why did the New Testament not condemn slavery? Well, as one has said, the gospel of Christ does not necessarily call men to aspire to higher social and economic positions, but rather changes their hearts so that they learn how to glorify God whatever their estate 
The concern of the gospel is not directly overhauling social structures, but overhauling the souls of men. And as men proclaim the excellencies of him who called them, there can be a gospel influence on society and culture. On the other hand, remember that slavery is nowhere commended by God. Slavery does not find its roots in the created order. In fact, the very freedom we have in Christ in the gospel and the very message of the entire Bible, and specifically in the New Testament, contained the very principles which ultimately abolished slavery. Household slaves served in a home under an estate owner and earned a living doing duties from being farmers to even being doctors who cared for the family's needs. They were paid for their services. One theologian says this was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world. They could be managers and overseers and often could eventually purchase their freedom. These are the facts regarding slavery in the time this letter was written. But the most important thing that we do know about Onesimus is that he was a beloved brother in Christ. Well, in the company of Paul, he was radically saved by sovereign grace. This indicates that the teaching on forgiveness found in this passage, while applicable in all circumstances and instances where forgiveness is needed, it is particularly relevant for broken relationships within the church between disciples of Christ. Paul is clear that Onesimus was saved by grace, forgiven by God through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul was certain that Philemon would have let Onesimus stay in Rome to help. That's clear from the text. That's the kind of guy Philemon was because of the gospel. But Paul knew that forgiveness and reconciliation were more important than his own comfort. Paul wanted Philemon to have Onesimus back not to be treated as a runaway slave, but to be treated as a beloved brother in Christ. Consider the pair of parables Jason read for us this morning. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son had treated his father shamefully. He did not honor him as the commandment of the Lord requires. But even while his son was still far off, the father ran to him and kissed him. The father had no clue what the son would even say, but he already had the attitude of forgiveness. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, however, even though that servant was forgiven much, he had no attitude of forgiveness towards his fellow servant. Which do you think Philemon is like? I guess the more relevant question for us today is, which attitude of forgiveness do we have now? One thing I do know about you is that you have been sinned against. I know this because you are human and you live among humans. Some of you have been sinned against greatly. Some who have sinned against you have not just broken God's law, but have even broken laws regulated by the civil government. And the punishment of that sin in a just society would be death. That is how serious some of you have been sinned against. Now, I'm not going to comment on every scenario and how, you know, who should be prosecuted civilly and 
you know, what, what about this situation? What about that situation? How exactly do I forgive in this specific scenario? But I'm going to give you the general principles of the actions of a forgiving person. You'd be able to follow these principles, whether it is between a believer or an unbeliever. But here is the truth. As one being saved by Christ, you ought to always have the attitude of forgiveness. So much so that when Paul or your pastor tells someone to return to you to ask forgiveness, it is certain that reconciliation would actually happen. You see, the father in the story of the prodigal son had already forgiven his son. He had a posture of forgiveness. He didn't hold a grudge. He did not become embittered. Rather, he rejoiced when he saw his son return to him, and he restored him to his former position. And this is one aspect of the actions of a forgiving person. Paul appeals to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus because he knows Philemon is a forgiving person. But now we finally get to the actions of a forgiving person. And verse 17 is where we get our first imperative, our first call to action. We find the actions of a forgiving person in verses 17 to 21. Let's read that portion. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brothers, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. The first imperative in, in the book of Philemon is this. Philemon is to accept Onesimus as he would Paul. Philemon is to accept Onesimus. To my ears, the word accept feels a little weak. Have you heard the phrase, help me accept the things I cannot change? It means that you would want to do something differently, but you just have to accept this terrible thing that's going on. That is not the connotation of the word Paul is using here. Other English translations use the word receive or welcome. I prefer this type of wording because it's so much closer to Paul's intention. Paul wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, to the, just like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Paul's desire is that Philemon would receive Onesimus back without bitterness, without a begrudging heart, without hesitation. Philemon is to welcome Onesimus back to himself, to his home, to his fellowship of believers. The text indicates this when Paul tells Philemon to welcome Onesimus as Philemon would welcome Paul. How do you think Philemon would have welcomed Paul? He would have killed the fanned calf and thrown a feast and put Paul in the place of honor. He would, he would greet him with a kiss and a hug like the father in the story of the prodigal son. This is Paul's expectation of Philemon in how he ought to welcome Onesimus back to himself. 
Is your attitude towards those who have sinned against you a welcoming one? This passage is about forgiveness between believers, but your heart attitude can be the same for unbelievers. Have you already resolved in your heart that you would welcome them back into your personal fellowship with open arms if the offending person came back to you repentant? Or do you give them the cold shoulder? Do you stay distant? Now I understand there's a type of worldly sorrow that does not actually lead to true reconciliation and some people who ask forgiveness have a worldly sorrow. There are times to hold back fellowship for the safety of yourself and others. This does take discernment to actually implement, however, for the truly repentant, beloved brother or sister, for the one who has truly godly sorrow, welcome that person back. But you might ask yourself the question, how can I welcome back someone who has sinned against me when there is real brokenness in relationship? Paul's next instruction is this, to consider the debt paid by someone else. Consider the debt of the person who has sinned against you paid by someone else. This is verse 18. It says, but if he, Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This is the second imperative. Charge what Onesimus has done to you, to me. Paul is willing to take on the debt that Onesimus owes Philemon. But Paul goes on to remind Philemon that he owes Paul even his own life in verse 19. So what is what Onesimus had done to Philemon compared to what Philemon owes Paul? This goes back to the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18. The king parted the servant of a debt of billions of dollars, but the servant could not pardon the debt of a few thousand dollars of a fellow servant? We all owe a great debt, every single one of us. We have sinned against others, and we have sinned against a great and holy God. If today you are in Christ, you have been forgiven of a greater debt than anyone could ever owe to you. So if you ask yourself the question, how can I forgive person X for action Y done against me? There are two simple steps. One, consider the debt they owe to you paid by Christ. And then two, consider the debt that you owed Christ of which you have been forgiven. Whatever they have sinned against you, if they are in Christ, the sin has been paid for by Christ. Forgive that person and welcome them back into their previous position of fellowship. If you are in Christ, consider what great debt you owed him and how he has welcomed you into his own family and fellowship. And then turn around and forgive those who have sinned against you. So the first action of a forgiving person is to welcome a person back into fellowship with you, at least in principle, if it cannot be in reality. And this can happen because, second, you consider that person's debt paid for by Christ just as your own massive debt has been paid for by Christ. Third, 
And a practical way, words that can be said, is I forgive you just as Christ has forgiven me. Those are good words to actually say out loud to somebody who has asked for forgiveness. I forgive you just as Christ has forgiven me. Third, consider the broader ramifications of your actions towards those who have sinned against you. That is to say, forgiveness is not just about you and the other person. Forgiveness affects all those around you. You cannot get away from the fact that your own personal actions affect your own household, the household of faith, and many, many others around you. In verse 20, Paul gives the third imperative. He says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Philemon hadn't sinned against Paul. Onesimus hadn't sinned against Paul. But Paul was refreshed when two brothers in Christ were reconciled. Just this week, my friend and public theologian Owen Strand posted this to social media. It is directed mainly to the marriage relationship, but it's true for all relationships. He says, quote, No choice is more consistently powerful in your marriage, husband or wife, than the choice to forgive. Forgiveness may feel weak and small, but it is not. It is mighty and meaningful. Forgiveness is oxygen in the lungs. It is fresh and pure air. Because Christians fight sin every day of our lives, forgiveness anchored in God's lavish kindness and mercy in Christ is what keeps our marriages strong. Forgiveness is anything but soft and incidental. Forgiveness is a muscle, and when we exercise it over months and years and long decades, it becomes iron strong. Justice is needed. Growth is essential. Honesty is paramount. Both spouses must own their sin, confess their sin, and sort out their sin. But never forget the central role of forgiveness in marriage or in a home or a church or even a workplace. Forgiveness is so central that if you keep forgiving, your marriage will endure and even be as strong as God works. But if you stop forgiving, your marriage will wither, dry up, and become parched ground. You have been forgiven greatly, so greatly forgive, believer. End of quote. Owen uses this idea of oxygen in the lungs from fresh, pure air. We have had a lot of hot and smoky days this summer. Thank you, Canada. I'm looking forward to autumn and the fresh, crisp air that comes with it. Think about the fact that forgiveness brings that refreshing air, not only to you, but to those around you. And think about the smokiness of bitterness and unforgiveness. But what does bitterness and a lack of forgiveness look like, you might ask? Looks like never being wrong and never apologizing. Having a handful of broken relationships and never owning up to your own part in those broken relationships. 
A sign that you are not a forgiving person is that you will never admit that you were wrong about something and never ask forgiveness. You will defend yourself to the death, or at least the death, of a relationship. Lack of forgiveness looks like ignoring a sinful interaction and living like your sin or another person's sin never happened. Never actually resolving conflict. Bitterness looks like always telling the same story over and over again about a person who wronged you. Always talking about people behind their back. Talking to other people about how wrong another person is or what a jerk the other person is rather than working through a problem with the other person. Bitterness can be a cold shoulder. Just not talking to a person about how they have affected you, avoiding them. Bitterness is thinking the worst of someone else's actions and intentions. Believing there's always a nefarious purpose to everything someone does. Always being offended or overly sensitive. Always snapping at a specific person or at all people. Unforgiveness could be hoping that another person actually does not ask for forgiveness because you feel superior to that person and true forgiveness and reconciliation would require that you give up the upper hand. Unforgiveness is keeping an account of all wrongs, real or imagined, done to you by others. Letting your emotions build up, keeping track of every time someone has offended you rather than lovingly and patiently talking with the other person who you believe has offended you. I bet you can think of people in your life like this. What's funny is that that person that you're thinking of is potentially thinking about you. So maybe think about your own life at this moment. When I read this list, did your mind keep going to another person? Oh, I really hope this person is is listening. Or, oh, I'm going to send this sermon to somebody. Perhaps that's another indication of bitterness and unforgiveness in your own heart. Like Owen said, we Christians, we sin every day. Do we ask for forgiveness every day? Some of you have not breathed fresh air of forgiveness for a very long time. Some of us have been stuck in the smoky room of bitterness and unforgiveness for a very long time. We don't even remember what crisp, cool, refreshing air feels like. And maybe we are in a situation that is not of our own doing, but just because of the atmosphere around us, the room is smoky. But imagine if you can clear the air, so to speak, through repentance and forgiveness. What if you actually reconcile? What if you actually forgive and are truly forgiven? Like Owen said, there is justice that might need to happen. There's always growth and holiness that we all need to experience. Forgiveness is not a mere sweeping of things under the rug. It is opening up the windows, turning on the fans, clearing the room of the smoke so that all can breathe fresh and refreshing air. This might take some time and effort, but working towards forgiveness is worth it. It brings refreshment to 
everyone. Forgiveness brings refreshment to our own souls, but not just our own souls. Forgiveness between spouses brings refreshment to the children in our home. Forgiveness between church members brings refreshment to the rest of the church body. Forgiveness between coworkers brings refreshment to a workplace. Forgiveness between neighbors brings refreshment to a neighborhood. Forgiveness between friends brings refreshment to a brotherhood or a sisterhood. When we hold on to bitterness and anger produced by unforgiveness, we blow smoke into the room and stifle all relationships. Your actions towards others in forgiveness or the lack thereof affects others. Refresh the hearts of the saints and be a pleasing aroma, forgiving one another. Do not dwell in bitterness and unforgiveness. What are the actions of a forgiving person? A forgiving person welcomes back the forgiven person into fellowship, considers the person's debt paid for by Christ, and refreshes the hearts of those around them. There's one further imperative in this letter. Paul says to Philemon, prepare me a guest room. That is an imperative. Prepare me a guest room, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Paul tells Philemon to prepare him a guest room for, which, for, for when he comes and visits. But remember Paul's appeal to Philemon. Paul is sending Onesimus, his own heart. He wants Onesimus to be welcomed as if Onesimus is Paul. Onesimus was to be welcomed back, not as a slave, not to be put back in the servants' quarters, but Onesimus is to be welcomed as a beloved brother as Paul himself. And Onesimus is to be refreshed by Philemon and put in that guest room. Philemon's forgiveness is not to be stingy. Our own forgiveness is not to be stingy. Forgiveness is to be lavished. Like we sing in the song, His Mercy is More, the words about God's own mercy and forgiveness towards us. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. We are able to forgive lavishly because we have been forgiven lavishly. We are able to forgive much because we have been forgiven much. You have been forgiven of your own transgressions even more than you could ever know. Yes, you have been wronged greatly and some of us have been terribly wronged. Deprivation, disillusion, and abandonment within marriage. Some of us have suffered verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. We have suffered violence, theft, malice, slander, and injustices of all kinds. We have suffered great wrongs. This is true. But Christ has suffered along with you. Christ is a high priest who can identify with your personal experience. But also Christ has suffered infinitely more wrong than you have. He has also suffered with you, yes, but he actually has suffered because of you. All your wrongdoings, all your own sin and rebellion, all your own malice and bitterness, he suffered for you. But what has he done? Did he give you the cold shoulder? When you sinned against him, did he stay distant? No. 
He left his glory in heaven to live the perfect life here on earth that you have failed to live so that you can be credited with the perfect life required for eternal life. He suffered and died the excruciating death on a cross, which is the punishment you deserved, which you will never have to experience, that is, if you trust him. If you have faith in him. If you truly believe him. He did this so that justice would be satisfied on your behalf. He rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his own. He is literally praying for you that you would extend forgiveness and forgiveness would be extended for you. He is literally, literally praying for reconciliation to happen among his bride, the church. Well, what else is he doing? He's also preparing a place, a room for his bride. Jesus says in John 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would not have told you. Because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you will also be. Do you see the picture of the gospel and the actions of a forgiving person from the letter of Philemon? Jesus welcomes repentant sinners to himself and places them in a beautiful room prepared specifically for them. What lavish grace and mercy and forgiveness. The crucified Christ welcomes penitent enemies into his own home. How could we ever be forgiven so much and yet be stingy with our own forgiveness towards others? Paul is calling Philemon to act like Christ. But this is not a weak, this is not a weak action. Forgiveness is actually strength. Christ set his face like flint towards the cross, endured the pain, suffering the eternal wrath of God as a man for the purpose of your forgiveness. To forgive you, he did this. This took the strength of an infinite company of warriors. Christ did battle with the spiritual forces, and he won. Forgiveness is going to take strength. But because we don't have the strength within us, God has provided for us co-warriors in the battle, in his church, and he has provided us his own grace to enable us to win this battle. Forgiveness is not easy, therefore we need the church and God's grace to strengthen us. We see this in the last few verses, which I call the atmosphere of forgiveness. If you're taking notes, that's the final blank, the atmosphere of forgiveness. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul is reminding Philemon that he is not alone. He has a band of brothers behind him, greeting him, cheering him on. Paul started with a list of believers in the home of Philemon at the beginning of this letter, and we see another list of similar names, maybe they match, and some just others in Colossians who meet at 
Philemon's home in his church. But also there are brothers with Paul encouraging Paul and encouraging Philemon to be found faithful to the end, giving them strength, encouraging them, helping them. When you need the discernment to know in what situation, how I need to forgive, how do I get this done, you have a church who is behind you. We gather every Sunday and many other days to be reminded to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and the grace that he provided. We come together to remind one another of the grace of God, to encourage one another to obey all that Christ has commanded us, even the command to forgive. This is why skipping church is not an option for believers. This is why neglecting to gather with other believers can make you comfortable in your unforgiveness. If you skip church, you avoid being challenged to reconcile. You avoid being commanded to examine yourself for known unrepentant sin and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness before gathering at the Lord's table, which we'll do later today. You avoid being challenged to leave your offering of worship and praise and be reconciled to a brother and sister in Christ. Staying home or doing something more important on a Sunday morning than gathering with the saints who need encouragement and admonishment is a soul killer and a relationship killer. When we neglect to attend the gathering of God's people, we suffer. But when we gather together, we fight together. We build each other up together. We fortify one another. When we gather together, we grow together in grace. We prepare for the battle to fight sin, bitterness, anger. We encourage one another to fight and to forgive. We are strengthened by one another to live the Christian life by the grace God provides. Now, there are extremely valid reasons why somebody would be providentially hindered from gathering in the church building but that does not make them any less a person of the church. I don't have this in my notes. It's just coming to mind. Perhaps uh, if we haven't seen someone at church, there's a very valid reason, health reasons, for instance. Maybe we could visit them. What kind of atmosphere are you adding to your church, to your family? to your workplace, and to your neighborhood? Is it the stifling atmosphere of the unforgiving servant from the parable of Matthew 18? Unforgiving, bitter, cold, angry, prideful. Or the refreshing atmosphere of the loving father in the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. Forgiving, keeping short accounts, merciful, graceful, patient, long-suffering, etc., When our Lord taught us to pray, he said, Pray then in this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. This is a very sobering prayer. 
There might be so much bitterness pent up in your heart that you might not think that you can never forgive that person for the years of hurt or even be forgiven for the things you have done. But that is an anti-gospel attitude. You have been forgiven much by your Heavenly Father. Forgive much. You have not you might never be able to actually reconcile with somebody who has sinned against you. Perhaps they have already passed away. Perhaps they have moved across the country. Perhaps there's just no way to communicate with people. They won't communicate with you. There are reasons why reconciliation will never happen, but for the most part, when there is a break in relationship, especially between brothers and sisters in Christ in the same church, forgive any trespass against you. Do what it takes to reconcile with that person. Perhaps you need a mediator, another brother and sister in Christ, who can be refreshed by participating in the reconciliation of two believers. Don't be a groom who forgets his, wife, his wedding vows and returns to his bachelor pad without his bride. Do not be a greatly forgiven Christian yet fail to be a forgiving disciple of Christ. In this passage of Scripture, you have an apostle appealing to you to forgive. You have the actions of forgiveness instructed to you here. And you have a church here cheering you on to live according to the grace God has given you. May we be counted among those like Philemon who refresh the saints by possessing the anatomy and practicing the actions of forgiveness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we will never know how much it actually cost you to extend forgiveness to us. We are wicked people. We live among wicked people. We were not, we were not lovely. There was nothing that caused you or enticed you to love us, but you chose us. You chose to extend your grace and your forgiveness to us. Just like Israel being the smallest, the weakest, you chose them to work through them. Our church is filled with, with sinners. So much sin has happened. So many offenses have happened. Lord, I pray that this church would be a refreshing, crisp, cool breath of fresh air to those who have been sinned against and to those who have sinned. I pray that this would be a church that would be quick to forgive, quick to reconcile, that we would not keep account of wrongs done, that we would consider that those who have sinned against us, we can forgive to give them because we would consider what you have done for us. We would consider their debt paid, we would consider our debt paid, and we would freely forgive. Lord, I pray that we would examine ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would come to you in a heart of repentance, like the prodigal son who says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Lord, I pray that we would have the same attitude, that we would come to those we have sinned against and ask forgiveness. And Lord, like you have forgiven us, I pray that we would extend forgiveness. I forgive you as Christ has forgiven me.
I pray, would be words that are on our lips continually. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring reconciliation, true, lavish forgiveness among our congregation. We would welcome one each other, one another, with open arms. Lord, help us. This is a hard work. This is not easily done. Sometimes this cannot be done in one or two sentences, but maybe one or two years. There is so much sin that has happened between many of us. Lord, I pray that we would do the hard work because because we have your grace given to us, but you have also given us your church to do battle alongside us, our co-workers, our co-warriors. Help us, Lord. Heavenly Father, I know that there are some that are not among us because they are ill. They are not able to come here. Lord, I pray that you would revive their souls, even today. Lord, I also pray for Pastor Dan and Beth as they are down in Bolivia. Lord, I pray that as they teach about marriage, the Christians there in Bolivia would be refreshed, that they would be renewed, that there would be a a life-giving atmosphere within the church down there in Bolivia that the whole country would see and be attracted to. Lord, I pray especially for Beth, for health, for healing. Lord, it is a physically daunting task to go to La Paz just to be there, not to mention to do spiritual warfare. So Lord, I pray that as Pastor Dan and Beth are there, you would give them the grace they need to do the ministry you have called them to. Heavenly Father, there are so many things to be prayed for at our church. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do healing among our congregation. Pray that those who have been sick will be recovered. But Lord, I pray that we who have sinned against one another would forgive one another. I pray that as we go into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It is a somber time, but it is a joyful time. We are welcome to the table of the Lord because of what you have done on our behalf. We get to participate in the breaking of bread and the drinking of the wine. And we get to do this together. Lord, I pray we would do this with a reality of our sin in one, in one uh, mind, but also, that we'd remember we are welcomed lavishly by you to this table. Help us, Lord, in our life to live according to your commandments. Pray these things in Christ's name.